0: Show you a better way.
1: don't Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSP and the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today we have my favorite show, the show that is the Listener Call Show. This is where you pick up your phone, you mash some numbers. The numbers you mash are 866-65-THINK again 866-65-D-H-I-N-K you leave your call for me in two minutes or less you try to be quick concise to the point and uh, you try to call in from a place where you're going to have stable cell phone signal or a landline or some place where I'm going to hear you and I'm not going to hear Jack I want to know about uh, 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 and really that would help a lot that doesn't that doesn't work I got one call it's a little bit broken up today but because it's a subject near and dear to my heart I'm going to go ahead and play it Um, but generally speaking if your call is Broke up or you're running a weed eater or a motorcycle or something like that in the background, uh, you get dinged out and don't get covered so if you've called more than three weeks ago and you haven't heard your call on the air right now there's a chance that you are just part of the backlog but there's also a pretty good chance that your call was broken up and you didn't even know it and i, I make fun of the motorcycles and the weed eaters and stuff like that but sometimes it's just really cell phone signal and there's no way for you to know because there's no one listening to you it's just being recorded so if it's more than three or four weeks and you'd like your call answered give us a call again if you haven't heard it by this point before we get into your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS Radio, and that is actually MURS radio.com. That's Rob. And Rob is an awesome guy because he only carries a little bit of stuff. You know, Everybody wants to be like a, a version of Walmart or Amazon or whatever and have everything. What Rob does is say, hey, look, when it comes to MERS technology, I'm going to carry stuff that's affordable and good quality that I know cold. So that if one of my customers has an issue and they call me up and they say, Rob, how do I get this to work or how do I do that or how do I adapt this? I can just go, here's what you do. And that way my customer will always be served. And what's awesome with MERS is you're blending security and secondary communications into one. Now, this is not like ham radio. This is not to talk to your buddy in Los Angeles by bouncing a signal off a satellite or 67 repeaters or something like that. This is about a mile or two range on a frequency that is public. You do not need a license to operate it. Um, it's really for kind of the homestead or event-type security things. Uh but the other thing you have are these motion detectors, and the motion detectors will sound off back to your radio or your base station and say something like Alert Sector 1 or Alert Sector 2. So here's an innovative use of MERS. I just put up some game camera video footage. I put up a slideshow yesterday with pictures and it the pictures, if you look at that one, it has all these times and temperatures and stuff on it. The video one I did, which is little video clips from the game trail camera like two weeks ago. Um, people are like, well, Jack, it doesn't say the time or date or whatever, so how did you know it was about 3.30 in the morning when that deer was there? I took one of my MERS radio detectors down there, and I don't like to do this all the time, but just to find out when that deer was coming in and have video at the same time, instead of go to the still pictures from that camera, I put my MERS sensor down there. And it woke me up, and it said, alert sector 2, and I said, that deer is down there. And I looked at the clock, and I wrote it down in my little journal on the side of my bed, and went back to sleep. And uh, when it went off, alert sector 2 again, I shut it off, which was bad, because my security was then disabled for the evening from the other sectors. But it did enable me to figure out, with a combination of technology, what was going on at what time. That's cool. And the fact that I know somebody's sneaking around outside the house, pulling into my driveway in the middle of the night, what have you, that's very cool as well. I'm going to marry that with some security cameras in the future. Uh, we'll be doing some videos on that. I can't give away too much. Because I really don't want to be like, if you come to my property, here's where my sensors are. But we'll set something up so we can show you some video of that. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. I call Safe Castle the original survival podcast sponsor because they were the first one. They were the first people that ponied up some money and said, yeah, we will financially sponsor this show. And they have been with us since then, and they have made no indication they ever want to go anywhere ever but right here. Additionally, they provide their Discount Buyers Club, which is a $29 value, to the Member Support Brigade. So that covers $30 roughly of your first $50 in dues your first year by itself. So Safe Castle. if you need something for your prepping, check Safe Castle because they probably have it, and I guarantee you you're going to get great service there. You're going to get great service from all our sponsors. If we have sponsors that don't give you great service, guess what happens? They stop being sponsors. We get rid of them and bring new ones in because our sponsors are here to serve the audience, not just to pay bills and keep lights on. That's something I've done from day one. If you really want to understand what my sponsors go through to be sponsors on this show, Go by the website, click on Advertise, and uh, look at the program that I have and the way a sponsor gets vetted before they get on the show. Uh, Next up, connect with me, as always, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can find all that at the website. Connect with us on the forum. and do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive uh, benefits all available only to members, free ebooks, discounts to 29 vendors now, all kinds of great stuff. Remember, if you're uh, law enforcement, military, peace corps, you qualify for a service-oriented discount, email me first, and I will send you back the discount code. Um, I also want, real quick, to let you guys know, I had Stephen Harris on yesterday. His website, or one of his many websites, is ush2.com. Uh, and the amount of information available on that re- that site boggles the mind. Uh, how to take wood and some common hardware and build a wood gasifier system for a couple hundred bucks or less. Gasify wood, push it into a generator and generate electricity from your house of scrap wood. How to take garbage, put it in a couple drums, and make biogas you can use to run a stove or a heater. Um, just awesome, well I hit him up for an MSB discount, Uh, just put out an announcement this morning before I started recording today's show so if you're going to go by USH2.com and buy some of that great informational stuff on how to do these things for personal energy remember if you're MSB or if you join the MSB, you get 15% off of all of his books and DVDs with that let's go ahead and take your first call today
2: Hi Jack, Uh, my name's Nate, got a little question for you um I'm uh, learning to garden, and I hear people talk about compost and um, fertilizer. And I was wondering, is there a difference? Do I need to compost and fertilizer? Uh, when, What plants benefit best from it? That kind of thing. Um, and another question. Uh, you were talking about copper on one episode. Uh, are you expecting copper to go up in value, or uh, any thoughts on that? All right. Thank you. bye
1: It's a great question, and when you hear the next question that was asked, you're going to think I put them together, and I didn't. You guys just, I don't know, the audience is always in this weird synchronization with each other, and the, the next call I'm going to play came in like five minutes uh, through the box uh, after this one. It'll be interesting when you hear it. Anyway, on the let's start with the compost versus um, fertilizer situation. Compost you can look at as a type of fertilizer, but I really don't see it as fertilizer. To me, fertilizer is something I add to my soil to boost the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium content in some ratio. Now, compost generally, not always, and depending on what it's made of, this is going to be all over the map, but in general, when you look at any fertilizer, you're looking at what its ratio of those three elements are, and you'll see a number like 5, 10, 5. That's 5 parts nitrogen to 10 phosphorus to 5 parts potassium. Most compost is one 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 all right now that's not really parts that's a bad way to look at it because you'd see it as the whole thing is that it's percentage of the whole. so if you have a fertilizer that's one 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 it's one percent nitrogen it's one percent potassi or one percent phosphorus and one percent potassium that means that it's ninety seven percent something else so the higher those numbers it's either inert material or organic material. And the inert material doesn't really do much at all for us. And the, 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 uh, fertilizer, we'll look at a chemical fertilizer, even if it's an organic fertilizer, like blood and bone, you might have a, you know, typically you might have a, a blood meal fertilizer, and it might be 1200. That means it's high nitrogen, and it, it doesn't do anything for phosphorus or potassium. But that's gonna give us a nitrogen boost into our soil. So that's more of the way to see a fertilizer. So, you get a lot of fertility from compost. Because even though it's only one one one, you use an awful lot of it, and there's no danger of burning plants. If you use too much nitrogen, uh, you could actually burn roots, burn your plants up. Uh, and you can create too much of any individual um, uh, you know, any individual one of your, your nutrients there, your NPK. again, that's what you're always looking at your NPK ratio. So you get a lot of fertility from compost. But you boost fertility with the fertilizer, and they're really best used in conjunction with each other. I'm a big believer in this, that I use as much compost and organic soil amendments as I can and as little even organic fertilizer as is necessary. But I watch a plant. If I see a plant whose leaves are yellowing, and they're yellowing not because the sun is beating down on them and they're not getting enough water. They're yellowing because they seem a little bit deficient. If Even if they're not yellowing, if the leaves, instead of like a dark, rich green, are kind of going into that light color, especially you see this in pepper plants so quick when there's a nitrogen deficiency. You bring that pepper plant home, or you grow it in a little pot or whatever, and it's all bright dark green, you put it in your garden, it starts to fade in color, and it goes to a lighter green, it's nitrogen deficient. Well, it's time to bring some nitrogen in, and hopefully some potassium and phosphorus along with it. But fertilizer is boosting fertility. Compost is providing a baseline of fertility, the best way to look at it. Compost is just about any organic matter that is broken down to soil, is almost the way to look at it. It is is very rich, organic-based soil. And uh, n- you see that, let's say, here's how to look at it uh, overall in your, it's like your body. Compost is like eating a really good diet of, of good quality foods. You're eating vegetables and meats and, and good quality fats and stuff, and that's your basic nutrition. And if you ha- But if you're deficient in B12, you might take a B12 supplement. That's the fertilizer. Best way there. On the copper question, do I expect it to go up? Long-term, absolutely, and I, but I expect every commodity on the planet long-term to go up in relation to the U.S. dollar. Why? Because the U.S. dollar is designed to decline in value. And I don't want to go deep into any kind of financial subject today, but I just want you to make sure you understand the ramifications of that. Inflation is a constant because it's designed into the system. you really got to think about this. Your government, in conjunction with the private bank known as the cartel known as the Federal Reserve, have created a currency that is guaranteed to go down in value. That's why every financial advisor says we have to make sure that if you need uh, to have an investment uh, uh, return of eight percent, that we're actually getting you ten because we're going to we're going to plan for a two percent inflation rate. We're planning for it because we know it will be there. And they'll they'll play around with it with core inflation, CPI, consumer price index, and this new version of CPI. They keep trying to drive down the reported number, but anybody that goes to the store and buys stuff knows that the real number is much higher. So copper has to go up in value. Now, does that mean you should go out and invest in four tons of copper futures tomorrow morning so you can play a trade? No. All right? Does that mean that things like you know AOC's copper rounds may have really enhanced value down the road just for the underlying metal value? Yes, and people that look at copper and go that can't happen need to look at what people thought about silver in like 1930. You know, silver was like you know they made coins out of it not because the coins had value but because people were like there's so much silver it doesn't matter. You know they use silver for industrial stuff all the time. You know and that and that's and they still do. But that's exactly how people look at copper today. So is copper tomorrow's silver? I don't think so. Because silver is its own thing. And I think silver, you know, if you're going to say that, well, then silver is tomorrow's gold, and gold is tomorrow's platinum, and platinum is tomorrow's, you know, Emodium 235 space modulators from the little magic Martian dude, uh, from Martin Martian dude from um, the Bugs Bunny show, you know, if you're going to start talking like that. So, no, I don't, I don't really see it like that, but I do see it as something that's definitely worth having some level of investment in. I would not, I will tell you this, when we have the the coins in the store right now, when we have the copper coins in the store, I would not buy that stuff with the same zeal that you buy silver with, but given it's so inexpensive, putting away 25 or 100 ounces of it, it it just makes sense, because in the form of a coin, it has a known purity and a a certain collector value as well. If you have access where you can start acquiring copper, um, and you can kind of stockpile it, like junk copper you can get for free or for salvage or whatever. It's probably not a bad idea. I wouldn't be going down to the salvage yard and purchasing it that way, though. It doesn't make sense. Um, you can also convert it to cash and then make that cash do other work for you. So I don't see copper anywhere near uh, the status of you know precious metals like gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. But I do see it as, as a, a real commodity uh, metal. It requires extraction. It requires refinement. And if you look, you can see that a lot of places in the world right now, like in China, people that can't afford to stockpile silver are stockpiling copper. And every bit of technology and construction in the world utilizes copper in some shape or form. So I do think it has a long-term value play. And then again, I think anything that you can put away that won't rot or deteriorate or decline in purity is a good commodity to store in some form, shape, or level because it, I'm guaranteeing you. I'm guaranteeing you, and I seldom guarantee you anything. I am guaranteeing you if you take a $50 bill and put it in an envelope and stick it in a book somewhere, let's say your Bible where you know it's safe, and you put it on your shelf and you wait 10 years, and 10 years later when you open that Bible, you pull that envelope out and take that $50 bill out. I'm guaranteeing you that $50 bill will buy less. So I'm also going to guarantee you that any commodity you would exchange for that $50 bill is probably going to buy more for you across a 10-year period. That's the best way to look at it. Great questions. Let's take another one. Hey,
2: Jack. This is Chris in Wisconsin. Uh, While considering building a PVC pipe ventilated compost garbage can, as you suggested in a recent podcast, I started considering your comment about the drain holes in the bottom. And my question is, just like with boiling vegetables and then pouring off the nutrient-laden uh, water uh, and thereby getting rid of uh, some of what you want, I think we need to be very careful about adding too much water to a compost uh, setup like that because we might actually be flushing out some of the nutrients we want. So my question is, should we try to channel the... Uh, drainage into a little catch basin or watering can or something um, as opposed to letting the runoff from watering a compost effort uh, just go down the drain into the ground instead of into our garden thanks jack looking forward to your thoughts.
1: bye see i told you and it's not a compost themed show but those two calls came in about five minutes apart and um, I'm just answering them in the order that it was received. I, I swear to God you guys get on some kind of wavelength where you're all thinking alike. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe it has something to do with the, the timing of the shows that I've put out and, and you're responding to those and you just don't mention them. I, that could be it, too. Never really thought of that. That could be the simple explanation to what looks like something, you know, energy-connected fields or something. Anyway, um, on the question, I'll tell you what. Um, first of all, if you wanted to catch the... Stuff that comes out the bottom of your compost bin, it would be pretty easy to do, but you would give up the soil to ground, you know, compost to ground contact. That's going to let a lot of little critters come up into there, which is why I like doing it that way. So you could do it though. You could simply get any bin that's a little bit bigger in circumference than the bottom of your garbage can or anything you're composting in that's that's watertight, and maybe set a couple bricks in there and set your your drained uh, composter up on top of that and let that drainage go down in there, and every once in a while pull that out, and you could take that off, and you could do that. And it's a lot like what people do with worm bins. Worm bins, you generally have a drain pit underneath, and all of the worm juice and worm tea and goop that comes out is great fertilizer. You could do that with a compost bin, but I, I just, I have never found it necessary. With a portable small compost sy- uh, system like this guy's talking about, which is made out of rubber-made garbage cans, it's a PVC pipes to okay, great ventilation, and there's a 30-minute video on this in the MSB that, that MSB members can download and own for free. Uh, I, guess, or I guess it's part of your membership. Um, it, but building, it's easy. Right? and the video shows you how to build it, but honestly, if you looked at it, you could figure out how to build it. It's a pipe in the middle with a bunch of holes in it. You use the drainage pipe with the big holes. Uh, core out a few more holes so you get good ventilation. Stick a small pipe through the bottom, put holes all the way around the bottom, holes around the top, holes in the bottom, and there you go, and you get airflow and you get good, quick composting. Um, so, But that's not really the whole point of the, the video. The video also talks a lot about, how to compost and what you want from composting, making sure you, every time you're adding some greens, and greens, folks, for you that are throwing your kitchen scraps in there, when you're adding watermelon, rind, tomato pulp, pepper leftovers, anything that's like a kitchen waste, if it's, I don't care if it's red, you consider it a green. You need to add browns and greens at the same time. So you need a big pile of leaves or some dried grasses or hay or straw or something. And every time you add a little bit, throw a little bit of that in there with it. The ratio, that's, you know, trying to get these exact ratios and all, master, composter crap, the hell with that. Greens and browns together, you'll get good results, period. Uh, it's how nature does it. That's how I do it. What And... The caller called back, and I don't want to play the second part of his call, but his call, his his question was, if I don't put drainage holes in the bottom of a composter, if I don't let the moisture out, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences are sort of what you were asking about. If we put too much water in there, will we flush the nutrient out? And, well, yeah, if you do too, but you really got to do it wrong, right? You never want compost wet, you want it moist. So that's why people say, well, why do you have a lid on your composter so it doesn't get completely deluged when it rains? But sometimes I might leave the top off and it gets deluged when it rains, and I'm not that concerned about it. Um, But if we don't put those holes in the bottom, then when we do get too much water in there for whatever reason, especially if it's because we've used a lot of wet material, watermelon rind, tomato, rotten tomatoes, and whatever, all that moisture can't get out, and it's going to suppress oxygen levels. And instead of an aerobic, oxygen-based break, quick, hot breakdown compost action, we're going to get what we talked about yesterday, an anaerobic breakdown that's going to produce methane and biogas, so it's going to stink, and it takes a hell of a lot longer, and we've got this goopy, stinky soup in the bottom. Now, if we're making biogas, then that's part of what we're going to end up with, and that's okay, and it's good fertilizer too. It just takes longer to get to that goopy soup at the bottom to where it's done, and we can we can get things done. So if we want hot, quick good composting action that results in this thick, black, luscious, fertile growth medium, we don't want anaerobic. We want aerobic. We want oxygen-based activity. And that's when our our compost pile gets hot in the center, and it breaks down much faster. So there you go with that. Now, as far as what goes into the soil, now there is nutrient going into the soil, uh, a lot of it. Now, here's the cool thing. If you're using a Small, like, this kind of composting is not designed for when you have a buddy that's bringing you a truckload of manure and a truckload of grass clippings and you're going to compost that. Big old bins for that, you know? Big old fashioned compost, three stack bins. This is for dealing with small amounts of grass clippings from your mower, leaves that you rake up, and kitchen waste. When you're doing that kind of a system, it's relatively small. You could set that system up somewhere, run it there for a year, move it somewhere else, and then plant in the soil where you had it. That's going to be extremely fertile soil there. Now, the other side of this is when you compost, according to Bill Mollison, who I trust his numbers very well, you lose about, you get about one per 15 parts of the value. So for every one bit of value you get as far as nutrient from your composting, you've lost 15, no matter how you do it. Because a lot of it goes off in gas action, a lot of it goes and leaches away and what have you. So what Mollison recommends is instead of putting all your waste directly into the compost bin, you roll over to your garden with your banana peel, you pull back your mulch, you lay your banana peel in the garden. You put your mulch back over it. And if you go back there in three or four days and pull the mulch up, you won't even see anything. It's gone. It goes very, very quickly between soil creatures eating it, between the very high oxygen environment, between a small amount of organic matter that needs to be broken down instead of large scale together. So I believe in doing this kind of in conjunction with each other. So now going tying right back to the first question, what is fertilizer, what is compost? Now we start to blur the lines. Because the banana peels and, and whatnot that we're going to go in the compost bin are now under the mulch, and we're sheet mulching, and that's going straight into the soil and all that off-gas. A lot of the off-gas, anyway, is being contained by the mulch and actually forced into the soil. And then becoming more of a liquid and binding with other soil media and material. Here's the key when it comes to gardening and composting and all. There's books written on it. There's people that say, I'm a master gardener. I'm a master composter. It's all crap. Nature knows what it's doing. If you just keep adding organic matter, whether it's in a compost bin or whether it's in the garden directly, if you just keep adding good quality organic matter, the soil will become more fertile year after year after year. So don't overthink it. There's the basics of it. Let's go ahead and take another call.
3: Hey, Jack. This is uh, Rendell from Nebraska. Uh, just a uh, comment on 693. Uh, I was looking at Larry's system. It looks like with that much uh, standing water that's warm, it just looks like a little magnet from mosquitoes. If you got to thinking, if you'd wrap that in a vinyl screen and then use a stapler to close it, and then take a box cutter and cut an X wherever you want to drop your bucket, you'd keep a lot of those mosquitoes out. Um, just a thought for anybody that wanted to try it. Um, from somebody that's had a greenhouse that I've grown in all year for two years, um, you'd mentioned screening out all the bugs. Um, that works if you're going to only grow greens. Um, if you have anything that's uh, going to pollinate, you need either you know to let the bugs in or have uh, self-fertile plants and. Also, the ladybugs need to come in to clean up aphids. seems like aphids are a real problem. So uh, thanks for the great podcast, and take care.
1: Bye. When he's talking about Larry Hall's system, he's talking about a system that Larry developed. Um, and I'll put a link to his YouTube channel again today for those who haven't seen it yet. But it's basically a whole bunch of buckets. And out the bottom of the bucket comes a little uh, um, slitted, slotted basket like he used for a hydroponics or aquaponics system. And then you fill the bucket with soil, and, of course, a little basket's full of soil. And then there's a rain gutter. And a rain gutter sits there, and one ten foot section of rain gutter, Larry's figured out, holds five gallons of water. And then there's piping, plumbing all the rain gutters in his system together, and you can just basically open a valve or set a float valve to allow those to refill any time that they go down too far. And that way the water, you know, the guard self-waters itself. It's an awesome solution. But then we've got all that water there, as, uh, as the caller mentions. I think one thing is that uh, it might be kind of comp. Well, I guess you know what you could do is you could just basically screen the whole thing and then cut holes everywhere your buckets go. But it seems kind of complicated when you can take one of them little BT uh, dunks, which is an organic treatment that doesn't hurt your plants, doesn't hurt you, doesn't hurt your dog or your cat or anything like that. And uh, if you throw one of those mosquito dunks in there, you, you Taking care of the problem, and I think those things treat for like 30 days. It also is not exposed water, and, and what I mean by that is when you line all the buckets up, there's a lot, a lot of surface water there for the mosquitoes to get to. So I think that you're going to have more mosquitoes breeding in a mud puddle off, off in the woodlot than you are in these things anyway. Um, but I guess it could be a concern. It's not something I really thought of, but I just rely on a, a monthly BT treatment of that because it's so cheap, so effective. Why not? Um, you could probably also use any kind of an, like an organic neem oil if it was enough to create surface coating, but that would be a lot of neem oil, so that probably wouldn't work. But there's, there's how I would handle that if I was concerned about it or if I noticed any type of mosquito larval activity in the, uh, in the gutters of a rain garden system. I, again, I think the more you do to cover the surface, the less problem you're going to have with it in the first place. Um, now, on the greenhouse thing, I want to point out something to people, because I'm going to have a question at the end of the show, it's kind of, the caller took a long time to get a short question out, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's such, an, it's such a personal topic for me in dealing with problems in my garden, um, but one of the solutions would be to use screening or uh, netting or what have you. When it comes to people that are worried about, well, I need something to pollinate my plants, it depends on what you're growing. If you're growing something that needs an awful lot of pollinators, let's say heirloom tomatoes that, that, that require, you know, huge yield, yeah. But if you're protecting something like a squash plant, well, squashes don't plant, you know, they don't have that many squashes per vine, and it's very easy to hand pollinate. So, one of the solutions would be is if you wanted to grow a lot of different varieties of really unique squashes, and you wanted to be able to save and maybe sell seeds, is you could build a great big greenhouse, house, plant all your squashes in there, use, you know, your heirloom variety squashes, and most squashes are, are heirloom varieties. There's actually some freaking GMO zucchini and crookneck now. Uh, crookneck being the yellow squash, and that really just disturbs me, and I, I, I don't want to go into that today. But, um, you know, most squashes are still, you know, natural varieties. There's plenty of natural varieties of yellow and zucchini squash as well. So you plant your squash in a screen house, and all you do is you come out and, uh, you know, once the starts blossoming it starts, you get yourself a, a q-tip and you, you hand pollinate your female blossoms or you pull a male blossom off the variety you need, pull all the petals back and expose the stamen and just tap it and, and that way you can do that. You can also do that for people that want to do this in even a garden and you're worried about cross pollination. Pick one or two of your female blossoms on a squash plant or cucumber or cantaloupe, you know, anything like that, a melon, a squash, cucumber species, and watch the female blossom. When it's just about ready to open, manually open it up. Okay? Do your manual pollination. Um, use like paper masking tape to tape the blossom shut so the pollinators can't get into that one. Within a day or two, that blossom will fall off. And put like a little twist tie or something on the stem leave room for growth that, that identifies that as one to be safe for seed. So there's a lot we can do that don't necessarily require the pollinators when we're at a home garden level. When we're at you know a half-acre field, we're going to need those pollinators. So that, that can be an issue. Just some thoughts on that. Uh, but on the, on the concern with mosquitoes, I want to make sure that people don't start like associating things that don't need to be associated. For instance, we hear about BT corn. And this is Monsanto's corn, where we take and we make, we take a gene from a fish, we, we use a, a virus to, to implant a gene from a fish to a corn, which shouldn't be done, and that gene causes the corn to make its own BT, and the corn literally has BT within it, and then if the corn borer worm eats the thing, it dies. Right? And then we eat that corn. And I, I'm not comfortable with that. But BT itself, i i wouldn 't worry about it 's not the b t that i 'm worried about it's bacteria thung- thungosis or somehow you pronounce it but it's it 's been used in organic gardening forever it in itself is not a problem it's it 's transmutational gene you know transmutational virus gene injection uh, that that kind of stuff i don 't want to put in my body anyway. Uh, at least any more than I have to. I want to say something again, too, because I'm getting people that are you know, thinking I'm not being strong enough on the standards on agriculture or I'm being too strong or whatever, and we're going to maybe back some things off, but I want to reiterate something I, I think everybody should do today. Take the time to do this. I'll put a link in today's show notes. There's an article on country... Uh, countryside small stock journal called All or Nothing. I want you to read that article if you're like really concerned about, um, you know, eating healthy and and genetically modified organisms and things like that. Um, if you're gonna tell me today that you don't consume one single bit of GM food, Um, you're going out of your way and good for you if you're telling me the truth. But most people that say that are full of crap. If you're eating anything with corn or soy in it, and it's not specifically labeled as GM-free, you're eating GMOs. That's why I think it's a problem in the first place, by the way. Uh, That's why I, I rail against it so much. If it was very easy for me to go to the grocery store and buy things and avoid GMs, I would not complain anywhere near as much. Anyway, let's go on and take another call.
0: Hey, Jack. Um, I live in the upland Gulf Coast of Texas. I have dogs, and, you know, down here we have mosquitoes like crazy. Um, I'm trying to find a way to handle their heartworm medicine naturally instead of the, the stuff that I get out of vet. Of course, I know that down here we've got to be really careful, um, but... I feel like that I'm just putting toxins in them. Do you know of any way to, to treat heartworms, or not treat heartworms, but heartworm preventatives that um, would be natural? Thank you very much.
1: Well, as much as I say I don't give financial advice, because I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not a doctor, even a dog doctor, so I don't give veterinary or medical advice, uh, that could result in somebody's animal taking, uh, you taking it on the chin from the Grim Reaper. Uh, I will tell you this. My, my view with heartworm medication is it is overused. Even though I give it to my dogs, I feel it's overused. And here's what I mean. Um, In your Gulf Coast, your, your numbers are going to be different. But up here, uh, from about November 1st to at least March 1st, the temperatures are such that there are no mosquitoes. So my dogs do not get heartworm medication during that period of time. And I've had to have really long conversations with vets, uh, with personal vets. I always try to find one that I don't have to have this conversation with. But I've had to have in the past about how it doesn't make sense for me to put a toxin into my dog's body to prevent a, a parasite that's not capable of being transmitted during this period of time because the vector for the parasite isn't there. For those that maybe don't know the terms, the parasite is the worm that gets into your your animal. The vector is the mosquito. A vector is a transmission agent. So in our last talk about genetic modified organisms, right, the virus is the vector to get one gene from a fish into the other gene sequence of a corn. So see how these call, the last call was mosquitoes, and now we're talking about heartworms and mosquitoes. So... Some basic advice. Anything you can do to reduce the mosquito count on your property that's that's safe to do is one way. And one is not having open water containers and things like that. Two, your inside dog is at far less risk than your outside dog. Um, Three, I believe in you take a dog off of a toxic medication at a time when there's absolutely no need for it. Four, I found a great website with all kinds of great advice about how to... um, how to naturally prevent and naturally treat heartworm infection. I am not going to give the advice on the air because I'm not going to be engaged in uh, providing medical advice. But I will provide a link in today's show notes. And you can go there yourself and... Uh, when you do that, you will see all of these different recommendations. But there are some things that I will tell you that can be a natural, helpful, preventative. But I'm not recommending it as a replacement. And again, I use this for my I use the uh, the conventional medication on my dogs myself. And one big one is garlic, including garlic in your dog's food, and I think that's a relatively safe thing to do. Another thing is feeding your dog. Natural food without a lot of junk in it, whether it's food that you're providing yourself or food that you're buying that is you know, free of a lot of the crap that I say we don't need to be eating either. Both of those strengthen your animal's immune system. Understand that long before there were human beings giving dogs medication for heartworms, there were dogs very successful throughout the world in various forms, from the dingo to the wolf to the coyote. They're all dogs. You know? Um, So somehow they get by without this. And I've known people that have had dogs, you know, they have dogs that are 18 years old, the dog falls over and dies at 18, and boy, you can't fault that. And I've known plenty of people that have never had their dogs on heartworm prevention and have never had a problem, especially with inside dogs. I've known people that have had outside dogs that have never been on heartworm prevention. And I've even known people that say, well, by the time my dog was 16, he had heartworms, and the vet said, so what, he's going to die anyway. And that most outside dogs that don't, are not on preventative end up with them and, and end up you know, dying of some other reason. So it's a choice you have to make for yourself. I'll provide the resource. You make the choice. I'm not going to give medical advice, even medical advice for pets. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack.
4: My name is uh, Britt, username, from MSP, and I live in Kansas. And I wanted to call to tell you something that happened this weekend uh, in our county. All right, we had a water boil that was put in effect for the whole county. The water treatment plant, uh, they had a 54-inch main that broke, and we've been under a boil for two days. Uh, There's been a mad rush of the stores. Everybody's in there loading up on the water. They had special deliveries of semis bringing water, in. and then I was doing some grocery shopping, and I was the only one that was in line that wasn't buying water, and it was kind of funny just looking around and seeing how ill-prepared these people were i just want to say thanks for the show and how i've worked to fill my storage and the supplies that i have and i just uh, think that people need to uh, you know realize that things do happen and that you need to prepare for them so i just want to say thanks and kind of tell you what happened
1: thanks well, first, thank you for sharing your story. And I think it's the, the two most common stories that I hear from the audience of seeing their preps paid off are boil water advisories due to a main break or contamination at a water treatment plant or what have you, or a jacket. It was going to snow today, so I went to the grocery store to see what it looked like. I didn't buy anything because I didn't need anything, but I walked in there and the shelves were bare and the lines were all the way to the back of the store. And I want to point out that water main breaks and water contamination and snowstorms and ice storms and blizzards and stuff like that, and hurricanes and tornadoes and large thunderstorms that take out electricity, happen all the bad-gone time. All the time. And, and the, the way I, I look at this is I do not understand when I talk to people about preparedness and they look at me like I'm crazy. Because all I'll ask them is, in the last year or two, have you ever had the power go out? And they go, huh, did it suck? E- well, not really that bad. Well, was it summertime? Yeah. Was it hot? Yeah. Were you sweaty? Yeah. Well, it sucked, you know? Or, you know, if you had a boil water advisory, did it suck? Oh, I just went and got some boil water from the store. Well, you didn't have as much as you wanted. You probably paid too much for it, and you had to stand in long lines. And if you run out, there probably ain't no more. The tractor trailing it in. Um I'll tell you, I think that there, there's some basic things we can do, and putting up some water storage is one of them, and it's so dad gone easy. Even if you just go out and buy, let's say, 20 to 30 gallons of water jugs, you know, they sell for 60 to 70 cents a gallon, and put, you know, maybe 10 jugs in each one of your closets so they're not all in one place, because that's just common sense anyway, but it's also just so you don't take up all your space in the closet with it. Uh, or, you know, get some dedicated water storage going on, some, some, you know, uh, you know, rain, even, even things like rain barrels and all. Well, you we can't drink it. Well, first of all, yes, you can, right? Because it's not just that you're going to have a boil water advisor. Sometimes turn the water on and don't come out. So at least you got water there, and now I can use that water to drink if I purify it with boiling or some other means. But if the water's off, I can also use that. I can take the water out stored for drinking. For things like a bowl of water advisor, and I can drink it, but I can take the other water, I use it for things like, you know, flush in my toilet. That's kind of important. Uh, if it's, you know, at least basic filtered out a little bit so it's not muddy or something, I use it for taking a bath. Um, it's it's paid off for us over and over and over again to have water stored. And I think the thing is Sometimes when it's not that big of an inconvenience, it's a half a day or a one or two day inconvenience, you don't really understand how big of an inconvenience it is until you don't have to deal with it. You know, When when you see everybody else doing it, when you go to the grocery store because you're picking up a loaf of bread for the kids to make peanut butter sandwiches with, and you see no water and everybody's there and people have their whole things full of water and you're laughing at them, and they're laughing at you because they think you don't know. They think like you're this tool. That's the only person in town that doesn't know that they need to buy water. They don't even get who you are. So thanks for sharing your story. And I agree. And it's the basic things, folks. If you're new to the show, putting up 30 days worth of food, putting up you know 30 to 100 gallons worth of water or more. Uh, having a basic evacuation plan, having a basic 72-hour kit, and a basic go-bag, having a family plan, to, how you're going to get back together, or how you're going to meet if you have to get out and leave from different locations, um, having an emergency weather radio, having some basic redundancies in your home for lighting and electricity. If you do that, you've just wiped out of what you're going to ever expect to deal with. It's not just about the zombie hordes. It's not just about the end of the world as we know it. It's about the basic crap that happens to all of us all the time. Uh, Let's go ahead and take another call.
5: Hi, Jack. This is more a comment than a question. um, Regarding nuclear, chemical, and biological attacks, Um, I recently read a book called Nuclear Terrorism by Graham Allison, who's, I guess, somewhat of an authority on the subject, and it really... Um, Raise awareness um, regarding the possibility of an attack and almost the inevitability. Um, And I live in, on the outskirts of Washington, but I work in downtown Washington, maybe a few blocks or or about a mile from the White House. Um, I know this is a topic that doesn't apply to everyone, and it kind of doesn't fit into the commonality of disaster um, framework of looking at uh, issues but I really noticed that as far as I could tell, there's no particular show um, regarding preparedness um, to terrorist attacks, maybe because it's somewhat of um, a controversial or, uh, you know, on the fringe, uh, a survivalist topic. But I wanted to recommend maybe doing a show. Um, I'd definitely be interested in that. Or even just some of your comments on preparations for such an attack, since there's a lot of conflicting information out there about what can be done and what can't be done and what is and isn't useful uh, in preparation for especially um, nuclear dirty bomb type of uh, attacks. So thank you. I love the show.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I'm not going to not discuss something because it's controversial. I mean, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that controversy is not something uh, that I shy away from. As far as it not being part of the commonality of disaster, actually, it's probably why I haven't covered it more in depth, because I think that it is, uh, with a few exceptions, which I'll talk about in a moment. But if you're not in ground zero of a disaster like this, where you've got real problems, uh, no matter what you do, you've got real problems. If you're not in ground zero, it's exactly in line with the rest of the commonality of disaster. You're either going to have to shelter in place or get the hell out, and you're going to have to provide your five survival needs. So it absolutely is. And the one place where it really goes awry from that is if we ever have like a full-scale nuclear war. Uh, let's say the Chinese and us or the Russians and us or or who knows who else has, has been joining the club that, that joins the nuclear club that gets enough to really have a full-scale war, starts chunking them out of each other and we start setting off you know the 99 Red Luff balloons. And I'll tell you what, first person and only one person, a first person tells me who sang that song in the 80s gets free MSB, 99 Red Luff balloons. But unless that happens, um, you've pretty much got an acute area and you've got... You know, kind of a, uh, you know, the, the surrounding bands of different layers of, of danger. And that, you're going to have to, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And like the dirty bombs and stuff like that, you're going to get reasonable protection just from a good solid shelter. Uh, and so it, it's staying in your homes. Now, the biological and the chemical, if you're exposed, and unless you have specialized gear to deal with it, in most cases, you're dead. Um, if we look at things like sarin, if we look at ricin, if we look at some of the, uh, the bioweapons that are out there, the, and the different chemical weapons and, and, things like that, um, there's stuff out there that literally a pinprick sized drop on your arm will cause you to convulse, retch to the point where you'll snap your own back and expire. And that's how bad some of it is. From, and this is what I know from military training about how bad some of this stuff is. Without specialized gear, you know, uh, you know, a mop suit and a gas mask at a minimum, uh, and additional mop gear, you're dead. So, you have to make, if you're really concerned about this, you have two choices. You accept the fact that if you're close enough to something like this, you're dead, and and that does not mean that you've given up the ship or whatever. It's the same thing as accepting the fact that if I drive down the road tomorrow and a 10-wheeler hauling 47 tons of gravel hits me in my F-350, even though I'm in a big truck, seatbelt and airbag, I'm still dead, right? If I get hit by that gravel hauler, I'm done. Like, I didn't even have a suspension. Look at one of those next times it rolls by you, they're like bolted to the axle directly okay so there is a place where we just go there's only so much i'm going to worry about personally or if you decide that that's not good enough for you then you have to invest in the specialized equipment so one thing we can do is potassium iodide. i recommend everybody have that it's a good common sense prep and you might want to know why during the tokyo fukushima thing i said don't go buy a bottle for hundred dollars on ebay because right now you can buy all you want for the price that they always were and if you'd waited that long, wait till wait till the hysteria goes away and buy it. But it's definitely a good prep. But it only protects the thyroid. And it only protects it from certain radioactive elements. So it's a short term solution to allow you to get the hell out. So you either invest in the equipment, the NBC gear, which is expensive, or you don't. And that really is all you can do from a standpoint of dealing with the disaster if you're in the area that's affected. What you can also do, though, is pay attention to what the hell's going on, and that doesn't necessarily mean well the terror alerts orange, but pay attention to what's going on around you. And there's certain times where you get a vibe that says maybe I don't need to be in the middle of Dallas or New York or L. A. or whatever right now. Pay attention to that vibe, you know. And if you feel it, respond to it. Smart. Don't lose your job over it. Don't panic over it. But you know, if if that means that maybe I'm leaving work an hour early today. You know, you're know, you not going to lay on your deathbed and go, boy, I wish I would have worked more. So if it turns out to be wrong, fine, but you can't live with it if you if you were right and you didn't act on it because, boom, you're gone. So I will do a show on this. I will dig deeper into the topic, but I'm going to tell you that I believe in most of these situations, you're either in the area of acute affliction and you're dead or severely maimed, period, no matter what you've done, or you're on the areas where you're dealing with fallout, or, you know, let's say direct fallout or indirect fallout. What I mean by direct fallout is in a nuclear blast, the nuclear fallout. Okay, a dirty bomb, the dirty nuclear fallout. Or you're in an area where you're dealing with what I would call peripheral fallout, which is the way society reacts to the disaster, which is the area of greatest effect. Right? In any disaster, the overreaction of society is your biggest disaster. You know, the hoarding, the, the breakdown of, of law, the, the fear, the paranoia, the panic. So you're in one of those two spheres if you're alive and or not severely maimed. So the commonality of disaster kicks in for most of it. But you're right, it's a topic I haven't gone deeply into because, to be frank, it's not real high on my area of concern but that doesn't matter. It's on the area of concern for a great deal of the audience. So I owe it to you guys. I'll put something together for you. Maybe I'll even bring in an expert to talk about it in an interview-style show. Let's go ahead and take another call. Uh, let me say one more thing, though, because we were talking about nuclear, biological, chemical, but the word terrorist is thrown in there multiple times. Um, I know there's people out there who believe there are no terrorists. The real terrorists are us. Everything that's ever been a terrorist attack was the red flag operation by the U.S., and I'm not going to say that people are all wrong, but they're not all right either. Okay, um, there is terrorist activity. There are people that want us dead. There are there are everything from the lone gunman to the organized terrorist cell that wants to hurt, maim, and kill people for whatever reason it may be, whether it's radical Islamic ideology or because somebody was served the wrong potato at McDonald's. Okay, and, and, and there's and everything in between that does exist. If you're a terrorist and you wanted to attack this country, there's a hell of a lot easier ways to do it than than trying to get your hands on NBC uh, equipment. And here's some examples. Um, Mumbai. Uh, I had Frank Sharp on. He said that he thinks sooner or later we're going to have a Mumbai-style attack here. That's where uh, a bunch of people just go around and start shooting people and hauling up and, and knocking people off. So you get together a bunch of guns and weapons and some explosives if you can, and you just start terrorizing. That's that's an easier way than trying to get a hold of a nuclear bomb, and it can do just as much, if not more, damage to the psychology of the nation because it makes people feel vulnerable. Um, If you gave a couple guys a gas card and some matches, and uh, like a gas credit card, some matches, and a car, and some rags, and some containers, I could start fires all over this country. Um, there's, if you gave a guy a bunch of cyanide and a, a needle, he could start injecting grapes in supermarkets randomly. Through. There's so many ways we're vulnerable. And I don't want to say anymore because I don't want to be giving like, some twisted person out there any ideas. But I just want to point out that the problem with us, with our fear of terrorism, is we, we're doing exactly what our government does. The expected is what we, we we're preparing for. And we always get the unexpected. They always move to something different, you know. They they really do, and we need to be expecting the the simple but deadly. Because if you're somebody that legitimately wants to do harm to a nation, there's so many ways to do it, especially if you don't care if you die. You know that's that's the big thing. Well, if the guy went out there and started shooting, the cops will kill him. Well, eventually, but when he flies a plane into a building, he's dead too. So obviously, he doesn't care if he dies. So there are so many other threats other than a suitcase nuke or somebody getting a hold of some old mustard gas from World War One or anything in between those. Just understand that, and that's why I say your situational awareness and your individual survival knowledge is more important than a gas mask. Let's take another call.
0: Hi, Jack. This is Ian in Arizona. I'm wondering what you think of buying a machine gun as a financial investment. The economic troubles the last couple of years have really dropped the prices of machine guns to the point where I think there's a lot of potential value when the economy recovers one way or another. The supply of legal transferable machine guns was capped in 1986, so it's an investment kind of like land, I think. They aren't aren't making any more, but there are more people around every day. I have no debt, and I'm almost done building my retreat-slash-early-retirement house on 40 acres of off-grid land. In addition to the land, I also have a Roth IRA, and I think the machine gun I just bought will be a good addition to my financial diversity. It's a belt-fed, water-cooled gun set up to switch between several different calibers of ammunition so I can shoot what's most available and affordable. If times get rough, it'll make a a great gun for those hordes of zombies and, well, a fun toy and, and retirement investment if things turn out just fine. I'd be interested to hear if you have any thoughts on the matter. Thanks. Love the show.
1: Well, for someone in your situation, you, you're fairly well along in life, you've got things set up, you have additional monies, and you want to be creative with them. Fine, if that's what you want. I, I have no qualms about your decision, and, you know, it's kind of cool to own a belt fed, water cooled machine gun that fires multiple calibers. That's pretty freaking kick ass. You do bring up a good point about um, the, the numbers are capped. Um, the, you, you're not going to see any more like that ever available. So there's a limited number available. So, And along with my comments on copper, anything that you have to pay dollars for that won't rot or degrade or break down over time is a relatively decent investment because the value of your money is guaranteed to go down. That said, If you're listening right now and go, I'm going to go tell my wife that I get to buy a machine gun because Jack Spirko said it's a good financial investment, stop. No, you don't get to tell her that. I'm sorry, right? This guy gets to say, since I have all my finances squared away, since I've got my life squared away, and since I had 12 grand blowing a hole in my pocket because I wanted one, because that's the real reason I get to buy one and I get to back it up with the concept that it holds its value and should grow in value over time. If you meet that criteria, yeah if you are in debt or you are just scraping by or you, you've just finally got out and you don't have your food supplies and you don't have any plan for the future yet and you go out and spend 12 grand on a machine gun, somebody should go get a great big uh, a carp you know one of those giant carps that like people see under bridges and stuff huge one throw it in the deep freezer till it's almost frozen. It's just a little bit flexible. Hold it with two hands by the tail, wind up like Mighty Casey, and smack you in the face for being stupid. That's how dumb it is. But if you're where this guy is, I can see the case for it. There is some things here. If you have... A real financial decline, you, as you've said yourself, it'll decline in value, and I'll tell you why. It is a limited market. There's only certain people that qualify. It is a limited market because, and I mean legally, to own one. right? I mean, anybody can, but a lot of people can't. right? There's a lot of people that have things on their record that prevent them from getting uh, the, 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 the tax stamp that's required to be able to make the purchase. Um, and then there's places where people live that even though I believe it's completely unconstitutional, they can't possess that where they live. Okay, So there's, there's one limitation. The other limitation is it's a high-dollar item. So now I have to have a qualified buyer with enough money. Number three, it is not a need. All right, I say defense is a need. No one needs a water-cooled, belt-fed machine gun. It's not needed. It's nice to have. It's really cool. I don't believe you don't need it is any justification for not allowing somebody to have it because the second amendment is not about because we need a gun. It's because we decide we want a gun and we have a right to it. So I don't mean it that way, but I mean from an investment standpoint, it doesn't fill a need unless you're trying to arm, uh, you know, an armed militia resistance or something like that. Uh, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a legitimate, uh, exchange of goods for money in, in a market. So, In a declined market, its value is repressed, which that's how you got the buying opportunity. Like I said, in 2008, before the crash, save your money, get ready. The whole world's going on sale. I wasn't thinking about it, but it did include water-cooled, belt-fed machine guns. If you ever end up in the the end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenario that I think is unlikely but possible, ah, yeah, yeah. You're well armed. Uh, you can hold off a lot of mutant zombie bikers with that. So it does fill that role as well. So it's, it's a fun, cool, nice to have thing. Um, I, I don't really fool around figuring out the value of things like this o- often. So I don't know what, you know, what kind of a, a buy you made. Sounds like you're well informed. So you made a good one. So I'll put it in the same category as buying something like a highly numismatically valued gold coin. That's the best way I can put it. So let's say we have a one-ounce gold coin that has an underlying value of, let's say, today gold is trading at 1500 bucks an ounce. I don't even know where it is, but it's been flirting with that number back and forth for a long time. So $1,500 an ounce. And I know that that, that gold could go down to $1,000 an ounce. It could go up to $2,000 an ounce. But I have a base value in the gold. But it's a rare coin of a specific grade and, and mintage. And that means that today it's selling for $10,000. I know that no matter what happens to the luxury numismatic market, I'll still have the underlying gold value. But I'm playing a financial risk with the numismatic collector value. That's how the machine gun is. It has a solid underlying value. There will always be somebody with the money. There will always be somebody with the desire. And there will always be somebody, unless laws change, with the legal capability. So I have an underlying value. But I also have a cool... Awesome, badass, I want a machine gun value. And that's the subjective part of the value. So that's the, the game you're playing with the investment. So it's not a safe investment, but it's a solid underlying investment backing up a risk play investment. And there's so many, the reason I asked that question today is not just really about machine guns. There's so many investments you have to look about that way. Uh, again, numismatically valued coins, a collector's piece of art, jewelry would be another example. Jewelry made out of gold or silver, diamonds, rubies, what have you. Certain underlying value to the gemstones and what have you, but there's a certain artistic value of it as well. And the more of the artistic, numismatic collector, cool factor value, generally the lower portion made up of the underlying value. And you're playing a risk with some portion of the investment. Let's go ahead and take another call.
5: Hey Jack, it's Logan in Colorado. And I am just calling in to say... um Thanks for all you do. Uh, some concerns. You know, I really try to stay as positive as I can. But at the same time, you know, I get scared, you know, pretty worried about, you know, my future and uh, the future of this country. I'm a team, so I really shouldn't think that, you know, that's, that should be the case. And I think, you know, it's not economic collapse, but a serious downturn is uh, headed our way. And sometimes I really wonder you know, what can I do? Because, you know, I'm really young um, to kind of get ahead of this Uh, and my parents really are on board with all this, so I feel it really limits what I can do. Um, But anyway, thanks for all you do. Have a good one.
1: Well, Logan, get ready for this, because some of this is going to sound really really caring and genuine, and some of it's going to sound a little bit tough. Um, And some of it's also going to sound a little bit inspirational, hopefully. So all three of those are coming together. I don't mean to be harsh on you, um, but I'm going to be a little bit in one instance, and I'm going to start out with that, and I'm professing this with just, I want you to take the rest of it to be the meat of the thing, but I want to say one thing really important to you right now. You're 18. What your parents are or are not on board with should make a flip and bit a difference to you anymore because you're now responsible for yourself. So you can, you can talk to them about it, you can point it out to them, but when you force, and I've talked about this recently in a lot of shows, when you try to force information and, and realities on people, they're not gonna listen. And the harder you force, the less they'll listen and your parents are going to always have with you what's called powder butt syndrome, and I get that from Dave Ramsey, and I think it's a great explanation of things. Once you've powdered somebody's butt, and at one time it's hard for you to believe, but you were a little baby, infant baby, and they put powder on your butt and a diaper on you, you really have a hard time taking advice from that person, even when they're right, especially when they're right. So you're not going to change their mind by the way you talk. You'll only change their mind by the way you live. That That's one thing you're going to have to accept. And two, you're now responsible for the way you live. You are old enough now that our government could decide that we have a war somewhere that not enough people want to go to, call you up, tell you, Logan, report for duty, put a rifle in your hand, and send you overseas to be shot at and kill another man. When you reach that age, you are an adult in my eyes and in the eyes of the law, and you are now responsible for yourself. So I'm not being harsh there. I just want to make sure you're in touch with that reality so everything else going forward makes sense. The next thing is you don't think you should be thinking this way, and in some ways you should not, because at 18 you should be out chasing girls, playing video games, and getting in trouble on some level. There is a place in life for a young man to do that stuff, to sow those wild oats. I'm glad I did it when I was your age too. But you're also fortunate that you're even paying attention because you have an opportunity between now and the age 28, 30 years old, next 10 to 12 years, to do so many things with your life when most people in your generation are wasting them. So be grateful that you're even paying attention. The next thing I'm going to point out to you is barring a total economic disaster what we're going to see has happened before and it's happened many times before and people have gotten rich during these occurrences so there will be opportunities and it's up to you to spot the opportunity that matches your passion put the two together and do something for yourself so i want you to understand that there is hope and i want you to understand there's some very simple things that you can do at your age where you have so much more opportunity than a guy's 36 with three kids you don't have to go. You're not in debt, so don't go there. So there's one right there. Just don't do it. Number two, get your ass a job and work your ass off, and then get yourself a second job and work your ass off. And for the next two to three years, work and or study so much that you don't have time for anything else. And you can get so much done and put away so much money during that time that by the time you're 20 to 21 years old, finally old enough to go drink a beer in this country, you can have yourself into a living condition that you uh, are happy with. And you can build a foundation from there. So don't worry about what's coming. Worry about what you're going to do with what's coming because the opportunities today for someone like yourself that's fully awake at 18 are unlimited. That doesn't mean that you or me or anybody else, like I said earlier, can't be driving down the road, here comes a gravel hauler, smack. And that can be reality or it can be a metaphor for something else that hits us. It doesn't mean we can't get a diagnosis of cancer. It doesn't mean that the economy... There's all kinds of crap that could go wrong. And what if, and what if, and what if. And as I said in my show earlier this week, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. But she's not. She's your aunt. So you conduct the rest of your life in interaction with your aunt as though she's your aunt, Right? And it's not quite that simple, but in some ways it is. So living in fear is bad, right? Being aware of danger is good. Fear for a reactive acute situation is good. You're standing in the road, you hear, uh, uh, you turn around, as a car, and you jump. You don't even think, you just jump. You might even land in some sticker bushes and get all scratched up and fall down a slate bank and get even more scraped up and bust your knee and sprain your ankle, but you're alive. Because fear drove you, and even though it drove you to somewhere that sucked, it drove you out of somewhere that was worse. So that's good fear. Everything else is terrible fear. And you need to vanquish it. You need to banish it. It's got no place in your life. You're a young man. You're an American citizen, and you're wide awake to the reality of the world. You have nothing to fear. You have everything to be excited about. So go out and grab life by the stones and kick its ass and take what you want out of it. That's the best advice I can give you at your age. If you're awake, be grateful and utilize your awake attitude to get what you want from this life. Do not be afraid to build a career, to build a business, to build a life Because something might take it away. You build it, and that way when something does try to take it away, you have something to defend, you have something to be proud of, and you have something to fight for. Because in this world, whether it's an economic collapse, a tornado, an earthquake, a government crackdown, or anything in between. It will be the fighters that survive and thrive and keep building, and it will be the fighters that rebuild after the disaster. When the storm hits a town and wipes it to the ground, some people pack up and go elsewhere and leave, and the fighters stay, and sometimes fighters from outside come in seeing the example, and they stand together and they rebuild the town. And it doesn't matter if you're rebuilding a nation, a state, a city, a town, or your individual life. The formula is always, always, always exactly the same. You build it, you claim it, you keep it, you protect it, and what you lose, you take the hell back. That's how you live your life. And that's what they should be teaching young people such as yourself by the time they're getting ready to step out of what we call high school today and go on with life or college or tech school or military service. That's what you should be learning. That you have the right to pursue whatever you want in your life as long as you don't harm another person. And once you acquire it, you have a right to defend it. And if something does take take it away from you, you have a duty to go get it back. And if we were teaching people like yourself that, I think we'd have a much brighter future. Well, you just learned that. So be an example because it will come much better from someone living that way than someone telling you about living that way. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack,
4: it's Tom and Austin. I'd like to get your opinion on the Bitcoin and the outlook for the future and online uh, purchases. And generally, the concept. Uh, moving forward for liberty and freedom. Thanks. Look forward to your comments.
1: Bye. Well, I've been asked before, and I'm going to give the same answer that I that I've given before. And the only reason I'm giving an answer is because I keep getting the question. I feel I need to at least address you guys and you know a, you know acknowledge you guys for asking. And that is, I don't know. I don't know how this thing's going to play out. I don't have a lot of confidence in it. In of itself, I do understand there's some safeguards in to control and cap it. Um, but here's the reality: with anything, we're going to call a currency. A currency is not money. Okay, gold is not. Can we get arguments today? Gold is money. No, gold is not. Even Ron Paul is wrong about this. Gold isn't money. U.S. dollars are not money. Uh, rubles are not money. Rupees are not money. And anything else that you think is money isn't money down to a flint knife that was exchanged 10,000 years ago for some berries. That's not the money. All right? And in, I'm not, Ron Paul's not really wrong. In the spirit of the way he was saying it and the way he was schooling Bernanke the other day, he's absolutely right, gold is money. But in reality, it's not the gold, it's the money. And this is where people get tripped up when it comes to anything about currencies. What makes a currency money is the agreement. That's what makes it money. So the reason that U.S. fiat dollars, and they're not really fiat dollars, they're debt-backed dollars, are a currency today and a valid form of money is because we all agree to it. Now, you can say, well, the government mandates it, they require tax. It doesn't matter why, but what I do know is when I go to any place and see any person in this nation and they're selling something in the act of commerce, they will take my money for it. The minute that agreement collapses, it's not money anymore. So the problem that a new currency, especially like the Bitcoin without a government or a public backing of anything, it's just a private figment of your imagination. Now that doesn't really matter because so are US dollars. They're all I mean, it's just figments of the imagination represented by paper or numbers in a computer. But since there's nothing backing it, where can you spend it? So the only thing that will make the Bitcoin successful and the only thing that will cause its real failure other than government interference is going to be whether or not people will accept it. So if I can't – if you wanted to say, well, Jack, I want to pay you for your, my MSB and Bitcoins. Well, if I can't take those Bitcoins and exchange them for what I need, if I can't pay my office rent with it, I'm probably going to say no. Right, or I'm gonna have to limit how many I'll take. Let's say I have programmers and developers and designers and things like that. And since the material cost is minimal on on the MSB membership for me, and since I have enough cash flow to buy food with, I might take a certain. I might say, yeah, I'll take bitcoins. Uh, but I, once I get twenty or thirty customers with them, I might say I'm not taking them anymore because I have enough to buy the few things that I actually can buy that I need with them. Right? So that's what, and that alone should tell you that when I tell you gold isn't money, dollars aren't money, silver's not money, that should tell you I'm right. That should tell you I'm right. Now, the commodities with the longest history on human historical record that have maintained the agreement among societies are gold and silver. So they are the most stable currencies that we know of to date. That's a true statement, and because of that, we have a reasonable assurance that they will be usable as money when many other forms of currency that are currently usable as money have failed, but it is still the agreement. And if you're in a place where everybody's starving to death, you'll get more currency action out of food than gold. Because only a person that has so much food they don't need anymore is going to be willing to take gold and they're gambling on everything coming back to a point where they can use the gold for money and, cre- and create wealth with it. right? So th- that's a long about answer of saying without confidence in the Bitcoin by enough people who will accept it, it's doomed to fail and I don't know that it's going to get that traction. And if it does, it's going to be mostly in the realm of services that don't have an underlying material cost. And if it can gain enough traction there, because frankly, a lawyer could take Bitcoins. Because he gives you two hours of time, if he wasn't already booked to give somebody paying cash two hours of time, there's no real cost. And as long as he can then pay a CPA with it, the CPA has the same thing. And as long as the CPA can turn around and pay a web developer to fix his website for him, that little chain works. But... A currency is always going to be limited by the economy that will accept it. So if we look at the US dollar, the economy that will accept it right now because they're forced to because it's a global currency standard is the whole world. Right? But there's a lot of places now where i got to exchange those dollars. So if I go to Europe, I've got to exchange them, but it still works. There's a currency exchange that's in place and well managed. Well, how can I? Is there a currency exchange for bitcoins? Right, So I can only spend them in the Bitcoin economy. Now you can say it's global because a person in Japan or a person in India or a person in uh, Switzerland could all do business with each other with them without converting them to anything. And you're right, it's global, but it's still limited by the size of the economy. What can I buy and who's involved? And then, it, then there's fraud concerns. And I know there's all these things that I watched a whole video on it for those of you that are addicted to the concept of the Bitcoin, i watch it. I understand there's tokens and things, and there's probably more insurance of a currency cap there than we have in the United States with the dollar, but I can buy stuff with my dollars. I can go down to the farmer's market, and I can buy peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers with my dollars. I can go down to Walmart, and I can buy a tea kettle. I can go down to Best Buy, and I can buy a computer monitor. Unless you get a competing currency to the point where you can do those things... And it's going to be very difficult unless you have it in an outlaw society because all of those acts of commerce generate taxes. The taxes have to be payable in dollars. And this is how the government squashes competing currencies. It's not that you can't have them. It's that sooner or later they have to be converted because the commerce generates taxation. The taxation must be payable in dollars. So about the only thing that really works is gold and silver. That's Because at least I can can guarantee the conversion. So there you go. Those are my concerns. And until I I see the point where I go out and buy lots of stuff that I actually need and use every day, uh, I'm not going to be taking Bitcoins, and I can't really say that I back the currency. The idea is solid, but in the current global economy, it just may not be doable. Let's take another call.
6: Hey, Jack. uh, Good morning. This is Matt from the Hoosier State again. Hey, uh, just come across a little uh, not very well-known policy, I guess, out here in northern Indiana. Um, Some of the municipalities will allow you to set up a separate water line with a separate meter that has a lower rate for watering your yards and gardens because you're not uh, putting water back in through the sewer system uh, for processing. Uh, Some of the uh, changes are rather costly. Uh, You have to uh, make sure you have a either a way to isolate the, the uh, faucet on the outside of the house from the rest of the water system, or you have to plumb it to your uh, shutoff, your water shutoff, uh, to a, a dedicated faucet somewhere. But that is still an option, and from what I understand, uh, you can cut 80% off of your water bill uh, if, you use, uh, if you use this method. Thanks, Jack, for everything you do, and uh, hope to hope to hear your comments.
1: We'll see it. You know, I find that really interesting because there's places like Colorado where you can put a well in to, uh, to get water for your house for showering and taking a bath and washing your clothes. But you can't even use that well to water your garden or it's not an exempt well and it costs more for the permit. There's more regulation over and things like that. So we have parts of the country that are basically swimming in water where they're saying, hey, if you're not taxing the the sewage treatment system with it, um, we're going to uh, let you get it for less. Now, this is what I find kind of ironic about the need to go through all this crap. When I lived in Arlington and I was on city water and city sewer, the water meter ran whenever I turned the water on, and it determined how much water I used. The sewer line also had a meter, and it ran and determined how much flow went into the sewer. So when I'd get a bill for utilities from the city, I'd have a bill for water and a bill for sewer. And what this is this is actually interesting. You could pretty much determine how much water you used for things like your swimming pool and irrigation by subtracting one from the other. So that to me, if that's the actual legitimate concern these people have, seems like a simpler solution uh, to, to go in. And, and I guess they don't want to do it because then somebody has to look at the numbers or whatever. But the way ours were done, is like basically the numbers reported in tandem. And uh, if you meter the sewer flow, then you know the water, then you know the sewer flow and you bill for that. And you bill for the water flow in and the sewer flow out. I, I, I don't understand really why they make this complicated. The other thing is that I always noticed our sewer flow bill was really low compared to our water bill. So I guess that's different where you're at because there's no way you would have saved 80% by taking that portion off. But if it works, it works. And if you're in a place where this is the case and you do a lot of uh, irrigation... Then, you know, take advantage of the opportunity if the numbers work themselves out. If you have to put five grand in and it's going to save you $300 a year, uh, well, in 10 years you've recovered three of your $5,000. That doesn't make sense. But if it's going to cost you two grand to do and it saves you $500 a year, you pay back in four years, uh, and from that point on you have real legitimate bottom line savings, well, that makes sense. Um, I've just never heard of anything like that before, but definitely want to put it out there so folks could check into it in their area. But I think it's really interesting the differences we have with water. Right now we have people ready to kill each other over putting dams in in East Texas where there's drought Uh, because they're damming up certain creeks and river flows to the point where uh, with the drought there's no outflow. So the creeks are literally running dry down, down creek. And there's areas where it's legal for people to do that. And then we have places where you literally are not allowed to put a freaking rain barrel on your downspout unless you have water rights to your property. Um, And, you know, I guess that sometimes. National government is is uh, is worse than local government, but sometimes it seems lately that some of the local governments have been the most totalitarianism. Uh, you know, with not being able to little girls selling lemonade, or not being able to have a garden in your front yard, or not being able to have a friggin' rain barrel. So I think Colorado's made some adjustments on the rain barrel stuff and the municipalities that are water strapped that have these stupid rules. Now wells are different, but water catchment like off of roofs and all, what they don't understand is that. Most of that water that comes off a roof causes erosion damage and never ends up in their water uh, in, in their uh, their water reserves anyway. So they're really not giving anything up by letting a homeowner catch the rain off his house. In fact, that homeowner will prevent the erosion, use the water more effectively, and then, therefore, pull less water out of the public stores. Because what it's really about is money. They want to sell you the water. It's not about conserving the water, in my opinion. Anyway, interesting tip. Check it out, see if it applies to you. One more call, we'll wrap up for today. Uh,
7: I have squash vine borer moths, if that's what, they're, what they are, moths. I have a pretty expensive container garden on my rear deck. I'm wondering what to do about them, uh, because I hear they're pretty devastating to squash and pumpkins and zucchini and melons, but I'm a little leery about dusting them with seven or any such thing because I have blossoms and I don't want to kill the bees and the flies that are pollinating the blossoms. I do have a long, kind of a whip-tailed blue-black blossom, and because my property is ringed with hawthorns, I have a, just a shit ton of birds, um, Is the squash vine, boar, moth bug, whatever you want to call it, is that something that uh, a natural pest control, such as the wot and the uh, birds, are going to take care of? Or should I break down and actually use some some pesticides? uh a plight that maybe the stems and the bottoms of the leaves trying to keep it away from the blooms until everything's pollinated um i'm up in northwest indiana and uh got a really late start on my garden you know i i need to not interfere with the pollination so i can get some actual crop going hey jack thanks a lot and uh i've heard you talk about the squash pine borers, borers before so i'd appreciate any input thanks bye
1: well um I'll tell you what, this is uh, the only reason I'm doing this question again is because I don't know a good answer. I can give you the best answer I have, and I'm going to keep asking because I'm looking for another method of control because God forbid these things come back into my life. Uh, everybody I've talked to here in Arkansas has never seen one. Most people have never heard of one. I know I used to grow um, squash in Pennsylvania, and like two squash plants, uh, you know, zucchini or crookneck, would produce more than we could eat. Uh, even with two or three zucchini bushes, you would end up like putting zucchinis in garbage, uh, you know, like grocery bags, and leaving them in people's cars and stuff to get rid of all of them. That's how great squash production was at one time. And I'm having a great year with my little bag garden. I'm gonna try to do a video of that this weekend for you guys with squash. i have mean, got little squashes now, but it's only only been in there four weeks, and I've got squashes everywhere coming out of them. And there are some squash bugs in the air, but not the vine bore. The vine bore is a moth. It almost looks like a wasp. It looks kind of like a weird orange on a body, like a wasp and a a dragonfly got together and made this thing. Is what it looks like, Um, but the moth doesn't do any harm. The borer does, and the moth is the source of the harm. So I don't like them either, obviously. But they lay these eggs, and then the eggs hatch, and these little tiny worms crawl down onto the stem of your squash. And then they bore a little tiny hole, and they go in there, and they start to live. And for a while, they don't really harm anything. They're eating, but they're eating at a level the squash can replenish, and then the little worm starts to become a fat little worm. And then the little jerk and his two or three buddies that will be in the one vine with him will literally hollow out the entire vine. You'll come out one day, you look at your squash, and the leaves are limp, and you think it's just typical squash limping in the heat of the sun, and you water them, and they kind of come back, and then you go out the next day or two, and they're dead. And then you look at the vine, and it's decrepit, and just it looks like the vine rotted out. If you start digging there, you find this big, fat, maggot-looking thing, and that's the vine borer worm. So how do you deal with this? There's some different techniques I've seen people do. One, they generally enter the stem at the base. So that's the area you want to focus on protecting. Some people have had good results by cutting off the first couple leaves of a vine of squash and then wrapping it in foil. And that seems to work for people that are doing winter squash that are a straight vine type of squash. I believe they're still going to get in there. They'll just go higher up or they'll go lower down into the root system or whatever. But some people have said they've had some results from that I don't believe the mechanical barrier thing's going to work with zucchini and crookneck and stuff the problem is you've got so every stem is a target for them they'll go in any place they can get and then go down through and, and mess things up so instead of a mechanical barrier when it comes to protecting your stems I think the best thing you can do is get some dimataceous earth and a little duster little squirt duster dimataceous earth and when you get to the time of year where the borers are out go out every day or three and coat the vine with the DE. And if it rains or you get heavy dew, do it again that morning. And what will happen is when the little wormie gets out of his thing and he crawls through the DE, he won't realize it's bad news for him, and it will get microfractures and cuts and dehydrated and die an evil, despicable death the way the little demon deserves to die. That's about the only way I've been able to control them, and it requires constant attention. The other way is to use netting over your squash, and as I said earlier, with squash, if you're worried about pollination, you can plant hybrid squashes that are self-fertile, or you can, and that's not a GMO, folks, remember, GMO and hybrid are totally different things, or you can manually pollinate, or you can open it up at certain times and provide protection at other times, which will reduce the exposure to the vine borer. I don't have a good solution to this. Yes, your birds will eat them. Yes, bats will eat them. Yes, uh, your wasps will probably sting and kill the adult moths and eat them. So predator habitat is critical here. But they're still going to get some through. And this is the problem with the vine bore. If I get a few leaf miners or something on my plant, they're somewhat easy to control, tornado harm or whatever. I see the damage. I can address the damage. I can kill the little bugger dead. And unless I get a massive infestation, it's pretty easy to control. One vine borer that gets in the vine, one, and you don't know he's there, will eventually kill the entire plant. That's why they're so devastating. The other thing, a pesticide, don't bother. Don't bother because once they're inside, you can, spray, you can saturate the pesticide. It, it, he's in there. He's protected by the plant itself. That's why they're so hard to get to. So I've tried insecticidal soaps. No, no dice. And you're right. You're going to kill your predators. You're going to kill your pollinators. There's, there's no good comes from this. So it's about as much control as you can exert and screening them out. If anybody knows a better way, let me know. Uh, there was a type of parasitic nematode. Uh, the nematodes you usually think of in the soil it came in a syringe. Uh, you inject it into the vine of the squash, and it's supposed to feed on these things and kill them. It was expensive, and it didn't work when I tried it. I, you know, it was honestly for anybody doing anything other than small-scale production, I've considered it just too expensive. But I wanted to see if it worked, and it did not work for me when I tried it. I got it from uh, what's the name of that company? Oh, I can't remember right now. It'll come to me. I'll put it in the show notes later today. But um, they have all kinds of great organic insect controls. In generally, they're a great company, great stuff. But that was the only place I ever found this stuff. And uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't work for me. Oh, it's called Gardens Alive. And I just paused the recording. You didn't notice, but I did. And I went to their website. And they don't sell it anymore. So maybe it didn't work for anybody else either. But it was pretty expensive. And it, it didn't work. So um, these are the things I think you can do. Now, one thing I saw on their site that I was going to say, and I forgot to to, to tell you, is if you want to grow a squash that's pretty immune to uh, uh, squash vine borers, and you like winter squash, butternut, I've been able to grow butternut all the time, and I've never had problems because the vines are thick, or not really thick, they're tough, and they're very woody, and it's not something they prefer. As far as cucumbers and melons and things like that, I've never had problems with vine borers on those. My cucumbers... Uh maybe once in a while I would get one vine knocked off by one but that's about it. The melons no problems at all. It's always been most of the winter squashes and the summer squashes that got taken out. Uh but butternut and I'm wondering about Pennsylvania uh long the what do you, what do you call those squashes the uh P- Amish pumpkin style ones. Uh they should have a vine very much like um, butternut, but I've never grown them. I was going to grow some maybe next year, and uh, those may those may have that good woody stem. So if you you're looking for something when it comes to anything in the cucurbit family to fight these things from just like not having to be a dish in the first place with a Thinner, more woody, dense um, uh, vine. Anything with a thick, juicy vine, that's like candy to them. So, other than moving someplace where they don't have them, which is probably not an option, all I can give you is DE dusting, uh, mechanical control, look for eggs, turn the leaves over, look for orange. If you see orange eggs on your leaves, crush them and get rid of them, and uh, floating row covers or some other type of screening uh, to keep them out. And yes, your predator habitat, but I have never got enough predators to keep these things totally under control by themselves with that we go ahead and wrap up today this is an interesting show a lot of stuff tied together again I answered the calls in the order that they came in I'd love to hear from you 866-65-THINK remember when you call find a quiet location try to have a good cell phone signal If you're using a cell phone uh, be quick direct and to the point and we'll try to get you on the air with that this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't
0: times we forget we are what we eat i don't know the answer it's like there's nothing i can do it's the price we pay i guess we